0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, the EU, including Hungary, agrees to keep helping
1: Ukraine. Yes, that's right, Andrew. I'll be talking about this. Chris Chermak here, news editor. $50 billion for Ukraine agreed at the start of an EU summit in Brussels. Later in the show,
0: the country comes to the city in Paris and Brussels, and it isn't happy. Also ahead, optimism about the future of high street retail.
2: I think the future customer still wants to have the personal connection. They still want to have a story to tell why they went shopping somewhere.
0: And for the love of God, stop whining. It's like six minutes out of your week. Just suck it up. Oh, I've read that out loud again,
3: haven't I? Yes, indeed, Andrew. But I think you're going to be very excited to hear some of the best Hungarian pop out there on today's Global Countdown.
0: I, and I speak for many listeners, can scarcely contain myself. That is all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Within the last hour, the EU has passed a €50 billion aid package for Ukraine, emphasising that all 27 national leaders had agreed, which obviously includes Hungary's hitherto recalcitrant Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Possibly enjoying the moment a little too much, Poland's recently reinstalled Prime Minister Donald Tusk posted on social media that Orban had been persuaded. Inverted commas, Donald Tusk. elsewhere in a good day for ukraine ukraine's ministry of defense claims that overnight its drones sank the russian guided missile corvette ivanovets i'm joined with more by monocle's senior news editor chris chermak um chris 50 billion euros the idea is that this will guarantee support over the next four years how significant is that for ukraine
1: well, it's hugely significant when you just take another number, if you will, that Ukraine's budget deficit for 2024 alone is in the range of 40 to 50 billion euros. So it gives you a sense of how much of a challenge they have. This 50 billion euros from the European Union will make a dent in that. And of course, this comes with, you know, discussions in the U.S. about funding as well. U.S. is, is not agreeing to fund Ukraine at the moment. So the fact that there's a deal with the EU at the very least is a very important step for Ukraine.
0: Uh, The interesting subplot here being, of course, that Viktor Orban, Hungary's Prime Minister, who has been persistently difficult about this, as he very often is about many things, uh, has got on board. On the one hand, that is part of... A, well, it's in keeping with the pattern of Orbán's behavior. You bluster and defy and wave your fist and then buckle at the last moment. But do we understand yet whether he got anything for his acquiescence?
1: Well, for one thing, it's just interesting the timing of this. So European Council President Charles Michel announced this deal just minutes into the EU summit. And to your point at the outset about persuading Viktor Orbán, there was a persuasion committee, if you will, that, if you will, that went to Orbán just before this summit started of was La from the European Commission, the heads of France, Germany, and Italy. They all sat down to persuade Orbán. Um, we know some of the deals. We haven't obviously seen a text yet, but reports are that he did not get the veto that he wanted. This was one of the things he hmm. wanted to have within a year or so to actually be able to veto um, this, as you say, a four-year package. Um, but he did get sort of extra promises for reviews of the funds from within the EU itself. So there had been a sort of annual review. But then also uh, there's a quote here from Politico's reporting from the draft that if needed, in two years, the European Council would invite the commission to make a proposal for a further review. So it's it's all the language seems to be about reviews, how this would happen if if Ukraine actually needs the money or not. But importantly, no, no veto for Viktor Orban.
0: Interesting. And I think significant that Tusk chose to take a bit of a pop at him uh, in his moment of triumph, because until the recent Polish elections, it was always thought of as a double act. Um, Poland and Hungary, Poland being the the butthead to Hungary's beavis uh, sitting at the back of the (laughs) class, uh, obstructing everything and causing a flap. Um, Do you think that Orban now understands how lonely he is?
1: Well, I think you might understand how lonely he is. There are certainly reports of Orban fatigue ahead of this <laughs> summit, uh, to your point there. But that said, everyone is courting him. So he does still have the power, given that he has a sort of exclusive veto over a number of things. So, for example, he's going to be meeting with Sweden's new leader as part of the, these EU summit talks, because he is now the lone outstanding voice when it comes to whether Sweden can join NATO or not. So he does still have a significant amount of power that he will be wielding at this EU summit and going forward.
0: Well, doubtless we will find out more in the coming hours and days. But just finally on the subject of Ukraine, while we have you here, what do we know for sure uh, about what Ukraine's MOD is claiming about having sunk this Russian corvette overnight?
1: Yeah, so this is something that's really just been coming in the last half hour or so. Ukraine's military intelligence director at the GUR says that it has downed this Ivanovets. It's a Russian missile ship or corvette in the Black Sea fleet. It's posted a video of this downing saying it was done by naval drones. Um, That's really what we know at the point. They say that the warship rolled to the stern and sank. Uh, We have yet to hear from the Russians uh, confirming this or not, but certainly you're seeing this kind of posted all over Ukrainian media and sources at the moment. And it would be something very significant a ship that you often hear about launching missile attacks on Ukraine from the Black Sea. Chris Chermak, thank you for joining us.
0: This is the briefing on Monocle Radio. Paris and Brussels both find themselves besieged this morning by phalanxes of tractors, part of ongoing protests by European farmers. At least 91 people have been arrested at the Rungis food market outside Paris, while in Brussels, fires have been started outside the European Parliament building. Other protests motivated by similar grievances have occurred as far afield as Portugal, Italy and Spain. Well, I'm joined with more by Philippe Malier, a professor of French and and European politics at University College London. Um, Philippe, as we were just saying, a a very broad protest, though currently focused on Paris and Brussels. What are the
4: core grievances animating this? Hello, Andrew. Well, the core issues are very well known. It's, you know, for a majority of farmers, and I'm here talking about France, but I think it's also the case across Europe. It's low incomes, EU or national bureaucracy uh, a kind of attempt to uh, of a transition from sort of a more industrialized type of farming to more uh, to a type of farming which will be more respectful of the environment and and uh and the fact also uh, competition coming from other countries, I think in particular coming from Ukraine. That was your previous story. I think uh, um, uh, there's poultry, eggs, sugar coming from that country, which are, of course, uh, are uh, saw that a less surprise than what the, the French Walmart can, can can make, can produce. And also the forthcoming agreement between the EU and the Latin American countries of the Mercosur bloc, which is also very controversial. So lots of gr- grievances. And a point really which is worth stressing is that when we talk about farmers being you know uh, angry and really um, uh, having lots of grievances, I think it concerns essentially small farmers, you know, small farms, because in fact you have, of course, different types of, uh, of, of farm industries. They are big farms. The big farms, which, by the way, are the the main beneficiaries of the CAP, which is the only uh, uh, common uh, uh, EU policy, the uh, common agriculture policy. They are the main beneficiaries, although they are a small number of them, but because... And they also... Uh, their type of farming is very industrialized. So the problem is really divided. There, there are also tensions within uh, the profession.
0: Uh, if we look at the French uh, angle on this in particular, what kind of line has President Macron taken? Because some concessions have been made, as I understand, that France now will not reduce subsidies on agricultural diesel as it had planned to.
4: Yes, that's one example. Uh, the decision uh, made uh, reached very quickly by the new Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal, not to uh, to drop the plans to gradually reduce subsidies on agricultural diesel. That was really an important bone of contention. Another one that concerns wine producers in the south of France, you know, there's there's sort of a, a package, you know, which will be uh, given to them, to, uh, to support them. Uh, but I was listening to the, uh, the, the sort of leader of a major f- uh, f- uh, farmer's union this morning, and uh, there was this smart, or in fact, there's they, they, this, this drive to Paris on their tractors with a view to sort of blocking the Rangis uh, whole food um, um, market, uh, which is, of course, a very big one, the pro- biggest one in Europe, one of the biggest one in the world, and that market essentially feeds parisians so if you really uh have a blockade there uh, parisians will will start starving so of course uh the police did not allow this so it seems that uh, the the sort of blockades blockades across uh, around paris are receding uh farmers are going back as we speak to their regions notably in the south of france and this um representative, this uh, union um, leader was saying, well, we got very little. We're still very angry. But what can we do against, uh, you know, armed vehicles and the police? You know, we, we can't fight them. We don't want to fight them. So we're going back home, but we'll carry on the struggle.
0: Uh, And just finally, Philippe, will French authorities be nervous at another level here? Of course, we are now a matter of months away from the Paris Olympics. One of the things that people have been worried about in advance of those games was uh, whether the great Gallic tradition uh, of disruptive protest might also disrupt these games, but... uh, Everybody in France who has some kind of case they wish to make does understand, don't they, that they have extra leverage this year?
4: Yes, possibly. There, there will there will be probably a fear of a domino effect. You know, if uh, farmers, you know, can get something out of you know this sort of uh, direct action, uh, probably other categories of the, in the population who also have grievances might uh, be tempted to do to do the same. A point about farmers: they tend, of course, to live in very rural areas in the countryside so quite far from paris where the olympic games will essentially be so in a way uh, farmers might not be the main concern but yes they, they might be a kind of domino effect and this problem is not necessarily to go now you know it will remain because as i understand farmers are still pretty angry it will take more than simply a few symbolic measures or real measures even to satisfy them. Just a very interesting point is that between now and 2030, around 50% of, of France's uh, currently active farmers will reach retirement age. So those people are, are really angry, they are fed up. So what comes next, you know, if, if they, no one wants to, to, to sort of uh, uh, replace them and, and do the job?
0: Philippe Malia, thank you for joining us. You're listening to
5: The Briefing. Here is Vincent McIverney with the day's other headlines. Thank you, Andrew. India's government has presented its last budget before the country votes in a general election this spring. Finance Minister Nimala Sitharaman has continued to fund new infrastructure projects and said the government would build 20 million affordable houses in the next five years. The head of the FBI has warned that hackers linked to the Chinese government are targeting critical US infrastructure, preparing to cause real-world harm to Americans. Christopher Wray told a congressional committee that water treatment plants, the electric grid, oil and natural gas pipelines are among their targets. Police in Canada are investigating after a stuffed polar bear weighing more than 200 kilograms was stolen from a resort near Edmonton public in Sturgeon County have been asked to keep an eye out for a 3.6 metre tall bear. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Vincent. This is the briefing on Monocle Radio. The United States has undertaken further airstrikes against targets in Yemen linked to the Houthi militia with a view to deterring the Houthi's recent campaign of harassment of passing shipping. According to the Pentagon, the latest raid destroyed 10 drones shortly before they took off. The Houthis, meanwhile, say they have struck another container ship, though this appears to have been an opportunistic claim made after the vessel in question stopped for the evacuation of an ill crew member. Middle East correspondent Greg Karlstrom can tell us more. Um, Greg, first of all, to this apparently uh, false Houthi claim, does that suggest that some progress is being made by the US-led campaign against them? I
6: I think perhaps in one sense, the idea that the Americans are deterring the Houthis uh, clearly is not happening. We're almost a month now into this campaign of airstrikes and... Uh, the Houthis are still trying to carry out attacks on both commercial, uh, commercial shipping and also an American uh, military vessel that, that came under attack earlier this week that was attacked with a, a missile fired from Yemen. So they're still determined to keep shooting. The question is how much damage the Americans are able to do to their capabilities. So they've been targeting uh, anti-ship missiles in, in a number of these airstrikes. Uh, those are a limited resource for the Houthis. At some point, th- they'll run out, and they won't have any more that they can fire at ships. Uh, now, as you say, they're they're trying to target drones as well, and so uh, I think that's that's the question in the longer term: is if these strikes continue for weeks or perhaps months. Uh, whether they will be able to seriously degrade the Houthi capabilities to a point where they won't be able to regularly attack ships.
0: Isn't there a related question, though, about how much damage the United States wants to do? Because, I mean, obviously, the, the amount of mayhem the U.S. armed forces could unleash is, is more or less infinite, but they're being very careful, and certainly this is what President Biden has been at pains to say, that they, they don't want to escalate this
6: unduly. They don't. They have made this, as you say, a a fairly limited campaign so far, targeting specific military sites that aside from the first big barrage of of American and British airstrikes last month, uh, these have mostly been isolated and, and very narrowly targeted attacks. Uh, I think part of the reason they don't want to escalate is just because this is an election year and the Biden administration doesn't want to be seen as dragging America into another big war in the Middle East. But another concern is that uh, the Houthis have been fighting for almost a decade now with a Saudi-led coalition. Uh, They have carried out in the past hundreds of attacks on neighboring countries, particularly on Saudi Arabia. They're trying right now. The Saudis are trying to negotiate a peace deal with the Houthis that would let them end their involvement in the war in Yemen. And they're very concerned that a big American campaign in Yemen might lead the Houthis to once again lash out at their neighbours. And so that is part of the, the consideration, I think, here for the, the Pentagon and the White House. I mean, h- how nervous do you think the United
0: States is, though, about the kind of escalation that they couldn't ignore? For example, if the Houthis actually landed a successful uh, and damaging strike on an American warship?
6: And it was close to that earlier this week, according to uh, American officials. They say there was a missile that came within about one kilometer of uh, an American destroyer in the Red Sea. Normally, when the Houthis have fired at American destroyers in the past, uh, those have been shot down seven, eight kilometers away from the ship. This one got in very close and they had to use uh, sort of their last line of defense to shoot down that missile that's a very big concern and that's going to be a growing concern the the longer this goes on and longer american ships are deployed in the red sea uh, you know, they have to shoot down everything that comes their way, whereas the Houthis only have to get lucky once. Uh,
0: and what's your sense of how cagey the United States are being about drawing a direct line from the Houthis back to Tehran? I mean, I know the, the chain of command is is perhaps imprecise and unclear, but is the United States also wary of saying out loud, yes, this is ultimately Iran doing this?
6: They are. They have good reason to want to downplay Iran's role in, in organizing or directing these attacks because, yes, if they were to directly uh, blame Iran for this, it would create uh, domestic political pressure to then not just attack the Houthis but attack Iran directly. Now. The extent to which Iran actually is in control, that is something that that Yemenis and analysts in the region have been debating for years. And I think no one really has a clear answer about just how much the Iranian Revolutionary Guard directs what the Houthis do. But uh, I think the, the sense that I have in speaking to people is that the Iranians are certainly helping to facilitate these attacks. They've provided the weapons, the, the anti-ship missiles, the drones, uh, the, the weapons that have been used in this campaign against shipping. They've also provided some intelligence support. There's been an Iranian uh, naval ship floating around in the Red Sea for the past few weeks that is thought to be helping the Houthis pick targets, uh, pick ships to, to fire at. But I don't think it goes to the level of the Iranians directing individual attacks. I think the Houthis are doing that somewhat independently, and they have their own reasons to do it. They've been uh, fighting a years-long civil war in Yemen. They're trying to do something that will boost their domestic popularity, that will boost them vis-a-vis their rivals at home. And this has done that. This has boosted their standing uh, both in Yemen and around the region in a way that nothing else has in the, the decades that they have been fighting the Yemeni state.
0: Greg Karlstrom, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is the briefing on Monocle Radio to Denmark now, where the 62nd edition of the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair is taking place. Monocle Radio is there and broadcasting for the rest of the week in our pop-up cafe studio. That is where Monocle's Tom Webb sat down with Daniela Drabert, fifth-generation owner of Hagemeyer, the retail store in Minden, West Germany, to talk about the future of the high
7: street. Please tell us about this department store. Where is it? What's it called? What does it sell?
2: So it's called Hagemeyer. That was the founder's name. Uh, my grandmother married a person named Draper. That's why I changed my name, uh, but still direct bloodline. We started uh, on fifty square meter in Minden for cloth and manufactured goods. Basically everything you needed, you know, for the box when you got married for tableware, for curtains, whatever. And then we grew bigger and bigger and bigger. Now we have three stores. The biggest one is 18,000 square meter. And we sell, we used to sell everything, not anymore. We used to also say furniture, t- uh, tableware, carpets. Now we focused on clothes, men, women, kids, of course, also accessories. We always go on the total look, sports department. And we got some people who just do a better job than us selling perfumes, books, and home and living.
7: And it's quite a diversification that you've got going there. How come you're selling such a wide array of
2: goods? Well, we always looked, what does our client want? So we said, the most important thing is what does our customer want? Not what we want to sell, but what do they want? And so we were never scared of new products and always looked into the market and said, we have to be diverse and especially not only in the goods, but also in entertaining. We have four restaurants, so people come just spend time and then go shopping.
7: Well, I'm gonna have to talk about shopping. Now we are Monocle Radio, we're very optimistic. This is not a gloomy topic, the future of retail.
2: Oh, definitely not. No,
7: it's not. How is the retail business doing for you at the moment?
2: Well, of course, it's challenging, but I believe if we do our homework, it's going to be promising because what we saw is that people still want physical stores. Of course, many went online during everything that was going on in the past years, but they all came back. They want physical contact. They want a real person to talk to, and they want guidance. They want help, and they want to meet with others.
7: And that is exactly what you're providing? Exactly. Do you have a meeting space? Do you have a cafe? Uh,
2: We have a restaurant, two cafes, a bakery, and also a lot of meeting points. And that's what we live for, that you just come, meet friends, and then hopefully find a piece that you like.
7: And people are coming and doing exactly that?
2: Oh, definitely.
7: So this space that you have, it is finite. Are you going to expand at all or look at other locations?
2: We always look at other locations but so far we didn't find something that fits to us because we prefer to stay regional to still be present and st- still know our customer
7: and you know the customer so well that you have come on your own to the copenhagen international fashion fair to look at the brands for the future customer have you found what you're looking for
2: oh definitely there's a lot of variety here and it gives good inspiration And definitely also for our customer.
7: What is the perfect brand alignment?
2: The perfect brand alignment, that's a bit tricky. So we're thinking in different personas. We have defined uh, about six different type of clients and try to create their world so they don't have to run through the whole department store, but find their corner where they say, this is what I need. They're the four, five brands that fits to me.
7: And when you are looking for these new brands, how tethered is that to the very first generation, the ideology of the company? Is there still a link?
2: There's still a link because we say we want to provide the perfect good for our customer. So there's the link. Even though we sell different things, still we want to find the perfect good for our customer.
7: And then when we look at the future of retail, What is the future customer? What do they look for? What do they look like?
2: I think the future customer still wants to have the personal connection. They still want to have a story to tell why they went shopping somewhere. I think that's really important. That's why you go somewhere. I honestly don't know what we will sell in 10 years, but we will sell something.
7: (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. I do hope you sell stuff in the future.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Daniela Drabert are speaking there to Monocle's Tom Webb. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller, and it is that part of Thursday's briefing where I caution you all, dear listener, that though it's too late for me, you can still save yourselves. Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here with the Global Countdown, and topically enough this week, Fernando, we are going to Hungary. We're back. It's been the first story and the last story of the show.
3: I know. I promise you, listeners, it, it, it was a coincidence. I mean,
0: I, I, I think it would be interesting to look at the Hungarian music scene. Who knows? Maybe. Why would you think it would be interesting <laughs> to look at the Hungarian music scene, Fernando? Are you insane? Well,
3: who knows? There might be even some political touches here and there. How well, will I we say know, no how, more.
0: How will we know?
3: Well, I'll, I'll tell you if, if you keep. How, if, how good is your Hungarian, Fernando? <laughs> I have to say, it's not very good. It's been very hard to do some research mm. on Hungarian. I think, apparently,
0: Andrew, is one of the hardest languages to learn in the world. Is it true? That is apparently the case. I'm not going to lie. I have never tried seriously to learn much in the way of Hungarian beyond the elementary introductory pleasantries. But, uh, no, it is it is a legendarily difficult language to learn. Apparently, it has some relationship to Estonian and Finnish and other turco ugric languages, wow. um, but I fear we are drifting from the point somewhat, I, I quite deliberately on my part, because I'm trying to put off the Hungarian top five as long as I reasonably can.
3: Don't worry, I have some cute anecdotes for you, oh, Good. Uh,
0: including a number five. It's a collection, actually, of Hungarian
3: musicians, but the main one is Dash, and he's also joined by Azaria, Young Fly, and Lord Panamo. Shall we have a listen to no, That's, t- that's <laughs> an all-star cast. And the song is called Run, Papa, Pan. Let's have a listen.
7: I, I don't know what
0: would be more tragic that that song was more or less than the sum of its parts. Well, I, I, feel, I feel there's some sky in it, or maybe I'm completely wrong, please. Really? Or maybe my ears
3: are not working very well today.
0: That would explain a great deal most <laughs> weeks, in fact, Fernando. But that's that's number five in Hungary.
3: And you know what? Dash has a lovely story. He used to Does be a, a garbage collector. And now <laughs> he's a pop star, a massive pop star uh, in Hungary. So,
0: you know, there's hope for everyone. Very good. I, the thing is, I, I would submit that actually collecting the rubbish is vital, worthwhile work. Absolutely. Wh- whereas making suboptimal hip-hop is not. Very good point. I'll use your quote, Andrew. I I, I do my best. At at number four.
3: Number four, I was a little bit confused. So if we have any Hungarian listeners, because... (laughs) If we did, we don't now. (laughs) Let's talk about Bruno. Uh, And we're not talking about that film from Disney. But Bruno, I have a feeling that he's also a footballer, or used to be. Really? Because there's a guy with the same name. I think his surname is Bruno Pato.
0: 100. Are we learning that in Hungary, turning to pop music is what people do once they retire from professional football or picking up the rubbish? Potentially, potentially okay.
3: here. So, well, I'm not 100% sure. Please don't accuse me of fake news, but I have a feeling he used to be a footballer. But now he's singing some lovely tracks. This track is actually like very short. It's only Good. two minutes Excellent. long. <laughs> very Eurovision. It's Bruno with Loka. Loka.
0: It is unusual, Fernando, to find oneself (laughs) thinking of a two-minute-long song. Oh, dear God, will this ever end? (laughs) But I wrote here, actually, my notes. Very Mm
3: -hmm. decent track. I kind of like Loka. I think it could be... You wrote that there in your notes. Were you drunk?
0: Not drunk. Not drunk. I did it this morning. But I I think you could be... (laughs) It it, doesn't rule anything out, Fernando. It's
3: very Eurovision as well, I find. It is.
0: That's, again, not necessarily (laughs) a gold star guarantee of quality. Um, Do you think we might hear from him circa Eurovision? Because it it is already February. We are going to have to start talking about Eurovision soon. You are going to have to put on your special Eurovision desk chief hat. And I think the Hungarians
3: should raise their game when it comes to Eurovision. You know, I don't think they're the kind of classic vintage. So, who knows. Knows. Maybe have this is ever, the year. Have, have
0: they ever won? I don't think they did, actually. No, no. And,
3: and again, if I'm wrong, please email me. M- maybe
0: maybe it's Bruno's year. At, at number three.
3: Number three, he's an v- interesting artist. Mm. Basically, he's the youngest artist to sell out uh, Budapest Pop Laszlo Sport Arena, which can fit 14,000 people. Okay. So he's,
0: he's popular. He's massive. Ha, has he ever at any point in his career <laughs> been a professional footballer or a bin collector?
3: Well, let's talk about jobs. I mean, when he was young, he had a YouTube channel. With paranormal conspiracies and urban legends. Oh,
0: good! He was popular. Had uh,
3: I think half a million kind of subscribers. Mm-hmm. So that was his previous job, a YouTuber. But now he's actually quite political. You know, we're talking Is here he? about politics. Is he, indeed. Uh, well, let's have a listen, and then I'll tell you his involvement with politics. It's Zaraya with Three Corti.
2: <laughs> Reggae, jollof,
5: sizzling, the buco dello mio, Te
1: boy that's a keeper in
0: now, to the untrained ear, Fernando, that will just have sounded like, frankly, bloody awful generic <laughs> Euro pop. But are you suggesting that there is some sort of significant political subtext?
3: There is, not necessarily with this track, ah. but, you know, overall in the album uh, that he's been releasing as a ride, he's only 21. Uh, he's very outspoken. It's he's still, <laughs> still time for a career in <laughs> bin collecting. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, there's a biting commentary, according to Hungarian websites, about his country's politics and corruption so mm. he's a brave man as uh,
0: a there well indeed so and all jokes aside it is no small change being any sort of uh, dissenting voice under victor orban's pseudo-autocracy so we can only wish him well on that front. Um, But at number two, Dash is back. Dash was just a
3: reminder for our listeners. He used to collect garbage and now he's a massive pop star. And now Uh, he's creating it. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I almost agree with you, but no, 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 no. I can't say those things. I'm impartial here. This song is called, actually, I found out how to say oyster in Hungarian.
0: Did you? Well, this this (laughs) hasn't been a total waste of everybody's time. Ostriga. Let's have a listen
7: task of the That's
0: that's four consecutive balls <laughs> from where I'm sitting Fernando. He, he plays A role of a sad barista in this track. (laughs) (laughs) And
3: I'm not joking. The lyrics is like, full house, full of caviar and oysters.
0: Everyone there is full of rubbish. So he's not happy. R- rubbish is a recurring theme of this week's Global Countdown in, in more ways than one. Hang on, w- w- <laughs> hang on. He's a barista, but everybody's eating oysters. Yeah, well, well, well. I mean, if you're I mean, in the bar. I, I, I've been to coffee shops in Budapest, Fernando, on many occasions. And despite, I wish to make clear, uh, for my lack of enthusiasm for their modern popular song, Budapest is an absolutely beautiful city. If anybody is pondering a weekend break destination. I need to go. I haven't been, and I'm dying to go. Oh, you absolutely it should, but my point being, in not one of the many excellent cafes in Budapest into which I have ventured, do I recall a coffee and oysters option being available? No caviar as well? Uh, I'm not not a big caviar guy, but again, it's not been my experience that it has been a standard menu item in a Budapest coffee shop. I think this guy's making it all up. <laughs> well, I think our guy
3: at number one, he's mm. got a very, very interesting story. And, and by the way, as soon as I saw the name, I was
0: like, well, is this a cover of a Bob Marley track? Oh, because good. the song's
3: called No Woman, No Woman, no Cry. It's not.
0: So, so he's just taken the title of a Bob Marley track and written a whole other song?
3: Yes, and it's okay. a very sad song as well. I'll explain why. But this is T Danny with No Woman, No Cry
0: so t danny we understand they like six of the dwarfs
3: is not happy he's not happy and, and the reason is he says i always told myself no woman no cry but if you don't have one it hurts doesn't it Oh, that's quite
0: romantic. But, but hang actually, isn't isn't that basically what the Bob Marley <laughs> song of that name was also about? I, d- I, d- I don't know. Maybe T. Danny did understand the you know
3: the, the reasoning of the, the original track. But he, you know what, Tidani, he should stop complaining because he's dating he should a top also model. Stop singing. I mean, he's dating a Hungarian top model. He, they just
0: finished third place in Dancing with the Stars in Hungary. It's, it's is that fine. is that what he is perhaps upset about? Is that a lament to the fact that they were tipped out of? the top two places in the Hungarian version of Dancing with the Stars. I believe he was quite sad actually. He was one of the favorites
3: and he would be apparently the first male to win actually the competition, but it didn't happen. Well, he was not you, very lucky.
0: If that is not grounds for heartbreak, I don't know what is. Fernando Augusto Pacheco with the Global Countdown. Thank you as always for joining us. That is all for this edition of the briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Vincent Maccavani. Our researcher was Neoma Akwe and our studio manager was Steph Trungu. The briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.